Ever need something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to customers is simple. Gear the way you design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Using tracking equipment on my squirrel and coon dogs is extremely important to me. Get 20% off your first purchase using the code BEARGREASE. Go to www.sportdog.com slash BEARGREASE to learn more. We have a natural flood pulse at the lower miss, whereas you don't have it in the upper miss, you don't have it in the Ohio, uh, you don't have it in the Arkansas. It's all dammed all the way up. Right. So, so that's, that's the unique nature of it. And the fact that it joins the Missouri and goes another 1,200 miles mm. makes it the longest free-flowing stretch of river. We've traveled a good ways down the Mississippi River in the last three episodes to understand its power and size, its ancient connection to man, the settlement of the Delta in some of the world's richest soil, the great engineering feat of taming the river in the Great Flood of 1927. We've covered a lot of ground. All of this for the purpose of trying to understand how the Mississippi River has impacted America. On this episode, though, we're getting into the nitty-gritty of river life and the fishery's health and status. And I think you might be surprised by what you learn. I was. Dr. Jack Kilgore, who's a fisheries biologist for the Corps of Engineers in Vicksburg, Mississippi, will tell us about the great beasts of this river, the giant catfish, paddlefish, gars, and turtles. We'll also hear about finding giant ground sloth claws, bison skulls, and dead bodies. We'll get to meet a man who spent the last 50 years commercial fishing on the river and hear his wildest stories. I really doubt you're going to want to miss this one. I hear that a lot. Ooh, you know, look, look how muddy it is, and it's got to be polluted. I've heard it's, it's not. I tell people it's not. In fact, you know, I would catch a fish out of the Mississippi way before and eat it before I would eat a fish out of my lake there in the subdivision. Is that right? <laughs> oh, yeah. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant, search for insight in unlikely places, and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. 
presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. How you doing? Oh man, doing pretty good. How about you? Clay Newcomb. Yeah, Bill Lancaster. Good to meet yeah, you. Yep. This that is lab. my colleague and yeah. partner, Brent Reeves. Brent yes. Reeves. Yes, sir. All right. How are All you? All right. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. You been on the river this morning? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went out and got those hooking nets. So. Brent and I just crossed the big river from Arkansas onto the Mississippi side in a truck on a bridge. And that's some uptown living. We didn't have to ferry across it or build a raft. If you remember, old James Buchanan Eads was the first guy to build a bridge on the bigger sections of the Mississippi in 1874. It's in St. Louis. Where we get out of the truck, the air is thick and muggy. It's incredibly flat compared to where I came from. And if you're not looking at a crop field, the vegetation is as thick as a cane break. Welcome to the Mississippi Delta. Bill Lancaster is a commercial fisherman, and he's just come off the water. He's wearing a ball cap, t-shirt, shorts, and white rubber boots. He kind of reminds me of the country singer Tracy Lawrence, but a lot grittier. So how long have you been fishing on the Mississippi River? Probably, uh, I probably started actually fishing in 1969. Yeah, that's the, that's the year I bought my first hook net. Graduated from high school. My dad belonged to a hunting club on the Mississippi. A good friend of mine that was in the same grade that I was, we moved over there that summer and commercial fished on the river in the fall of 69. And then, uh, then uh, went off to the, uh, to the army. So you got that, that winter, yeah. So we, we fished all summer over there and sold fish, you know, to a local guy that was on the river at that time from Arkansas. And you, you were just like, hey, I can make a, I can make a living well, doing we were, this. You know, we were, you know, 18, 17, 18 years old at that time, you know, and we were up for pretty much anything. But we, you know, both grew up hunting and fishing, you know, and we enjoyed, you know, being on the river. And we thought, you know, that'd be a great thing to do. It'd be fish this summer, you know, and uh, try to make a little money, just something to do before we went off to the, in the service. That was over 50 years ago. Yeah, 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 69, so yeah. And so of, every year since then, you've fished? Fished off and on for a number of years, and then uh, started fishing full-time probably around 1985, 86. Full year-round? Yeah, year-round. Yeah, 12 months out of the year. You know, doesn't matter how cold it is, how hot it is, you know, we fished. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You spent a lot of time on the river. Oh, I wish, you know, I wish I knew exactly how much time I had spent out there. Yeah, unbelievable. Mr. Bill is 71 years old and has spent over 50 years on the water. With all this talk from Mark Twain about the treacherous river and its incredible power, one of my first questions, which struck at the heart of my curiosity and had nothing to do with fish, but had to do with close calls. I asked him if he'd had any, and you better believe that he had. Eventually, we're going to talk to him about fishing, but not yet. Yeah, I've, I've had a couple of experiences out there. I was running a uh, small 16-foot boat with a 50-horse motor on it. And earlier that week, I had broken the trim tab off of it. And when you do that, the motor will torque hard to the right. 
that trim tab is what keeps that motor running in a straight line, even if you let off the tiller handle. So I broke that trim tab off, and I was running hoop nets, and I had gotten through running the hoop nets. I was headed back up river with about a half a load of fish, and there was water in the boat, and I was going to reach back and pull the plug out and let the, drain the water while I was running back to the boat ramp. Well, I pulled the plug out, had one hand on the, on the tiller handle, and I was running about half throttle, not wide open. And somehow, when I pulled that plug out and started to turn around, my hand slipped off that tiller handle. And when it did, it made a hard 90 to the right, and it sent me out of that boat just in an instant. I mean, I, I didn't even realize what had happened. The first mm. thing I knew, I was under the water, and when I came to the surface... I could see the boat going off away from me, still in gear. It had idled itself down to idle speed, and it was going off, you know. But when it did that hard right turn, it threw all the fish over to the left side of the boat, you know. Everything in the boat went over to the left side mm. when it made that hard right turn. And when it did that, it sent the boat into a, into a turn, and it was running at half speed with the plug out, coming around and making a circle while well, I was in the river had my rain gear on had boots on had blue jeans under the rain gear you know and it was it was heavy I kicked the boots off you know to lighten myself up you know and I was just dog paddling trying to stay afloat and the boat I could see it you know coming around it was going to make a circle and it you know it looked like it might come back by me you know so it, it started that turn and I said well if I can catch it when it comes around I can make it. So we're floating down the current, in the current, you know, floating down river, and it's coming around, just at idle speed, coming around. When it did, it was just out of reach. I was trying to get to it, but it was just out of reach, and my hands just barely missed the gunnel on that boat. I was going to just grab hold of the side of the boat, you know, mm -hmm. and hold on. Well, I missed it. You know, it, it, it wasn't quite close enough. So as it went around again, it made a wider circle. It was widening itself out. It was coming at a wider, making a wider turn every time it went around. Second time it went around, it, I was lined up with it pretty good. And when it passed me, I just locked my arms over the gunnel of the boat and just held on until I got my strength up and got my wits about me. You know, I just hung on and let it pull me. It was dragging me through the water. And I just rolled myself over the, in the boat with just brute strength. Just rolled myself over in the boat and laid in the bottom of the boat for a second, you know. Then I reached back there and I got the plug back in and I got control of it, you know. But if that boat hadn't come around and, and picked me up, wow, I probably would have been gone. Yeah. Really? You yeah. think you would have? Yeah, I would have You drowned. were out in the middle of the river. Yeah. Well, I wasn't in the middle, but I was out. So you don't river. think you could have made it to the bank? I don't think I could. It was, it was it cold. Was so it, the water wasn't that cold in October, you know. But it was just the current and the weight, the sheer weight of those that wet clothing and that rain gear, and I had no life jacket on, nothing. It just sapped my strength wow. almost immediately. It wow. was all I could do to hold myself up. Yeah. Just keep my head above water, you know. That was uh, that was one of the closer calls. And so I you had. just so got back in the boat. Got back in the boat and probably said, "Thank you, Lord." And yeah, went gained on. my composure and, and went on to the boat ramp and carried wow. on, carried on that day. Yeah, sold wow. the fish. You know, did it all. Yeah. <laughs> what just, did your wife it, say when you told her that story? <clears throat> well, 
she was and everybody else i've told it to you you know they just say you know you're you just it wasn't your time you know just lucky you know you know davy crockett had a boat wreck on the mississippi river and he said if you're born to be hung you'll never drown it wasn't his time to drown that's right yeah (laughs) how old were you when that happened that was probably in uh, 2000 probably eight Okay, so you're 71 so, now. Yeah, I was in uh, probably, what, 60s? About so you 60 were in your 60s. Time. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Boat wrecks on the Mississippi are common. As a matter of fact, the worst maritime disaster in U.S. history happened on the Mississippi River on April 27, 1865, near Memphis, Tennessee. A 260-foot-long steamboat called the Sultana was carrying Union prisoners. Just two weeks after the Civil War ended, who had been released from a Confederate prison camp at Vicksburg. They were headed to St. Louis to go home to their families. The boat had a carrying capacity of 376 passengers, but they'd packed on 2,137 people aboard. At 2 a.m. on that April morning, a boiler explosion sunk the ship in a fiery ball of chaos. 1,169 people died most Union soldiers. Despite the size of the disaster, the shipwreck didn't get much press because Lincoln had just been assassinated, the war had been raging for years and had just ended, and the country was tired of bad news. And there was a possible government cover-up because of the overcrowded ship on a U.S.-sanctioned transport. Today, there is a Sultana Disaster Museum in Marion, Arkansas. The boat was missing for over a hundred years. It sank in the river. But in 1982, over two miles off the current river, the Sultana was located in an Arkansas soybean field. The riverbed had shifted that far, and the boat is still there. Soon we're going to talk about some fun stuff like the charismatic fish of the Mississippi River with Dr. Jack Kilgore with two L's. And I think you'll be surprised to hear how well they're doing. But I had to ask Mr. Bill another question, kind of a dark question. And if you're listening with kids, we're about to talk about D-E-A-D people. Stand by. Don't judge me. I'm just asking the questions that everybody's thinking. But it's an interesting lifestyle. You know, you see a lot of different things, you know. You ever found a dead body on the river? Yep. Found a couple of those over the years. Have you really? Yeah found two actually what what was the story yeah found one uh just several years ago she was right down here south of town yeah Hmm. and i was going upstream you know i had done running running gear you know it was in march it was cold i was running upstream and i was just looking you know out across the river you know just paying attention to where i was going and i saw something you know floating downstream you know it, it looked a little bit different you know, then I said, well, that's probably a, a deer. You know, you see bucks, you know, somebody shot upstream or whatever coming down. I passed by it, and I, I picked up big deer before, you know, I mean, big deer. And, I, you know, I said, I'm going to go back, and I, I'm going to look and see exactly what that was. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I turned around and I got a little bit closer to it, I could tell. I said, oh, my Lord, here we go. Mr. Bill reported these incidents to the authorities and worked with law enforcement to help them recover the bodies. But it's clear the Mississippi is no stranger to the dead. In the first episode, we learned that Hernando de Soto, 
credited as the first European to see the river in 1541, had a water burial not far from where the Sultana sank. My intent is not to be morbid, but rather to present a slick scientific segue into the next section of the podcast, but I'd say there's a high probability that DeSoto's body was eaten by an alligator snapping turtle. If you know wild places, you know that organic matter in water does not go to waste. I now want to talk with Dr. Kilgore about the health of the Mississippi River. This first segment is a bit of a review, but it will quickly get into the new stuff. All the other great rivers of the world, the Congo, the Nile, uh, the Yancey, all of those, they have dams near the mouth of the river, whereas the Mississippi... The first dam you encounter is up in St. Louis, which is 1,200 miles up. Hmm. However, a fish can take a left on the Missouri and go another 1,200 miles to the Gavin's Point Dam on the Missouri. So, and I tell people this, that if you put all of that together, there's almost 2,400 miles of free-flowing Mississippi-Missouri River. There's nothing else like that in the world except for the Amazon. Hmm. All the other great rivers have been dammed which influences sediment transport, water quality, migratory fish. You know, it has all those negative impacts. And, and that's one reason, in particular the lower mist, because it has an intact floodplain. It has a natural flood pulse. There have been no extirpations or extinction of species in modern time. Really, even with all the manipulation. That's right. Despite all that river engineering, we still have a very robust, diverse aquatic assemblage in this river. That's incredible. And that's what we're trying to understand and protect and conserve. Because it really has never been evaluated in a, you know, in a very holistic, quantitative way hmm. until the last 20 years or so. It's essential to understand the river is what it is because of its intact floodplain the batcher, as it's called, or the space inside the levees. Here's why a healthy floodplain is important for fish. What happens then is every spring, you know, the river comes up and it floods and the fish and other aquatic organisms, they follow that flood pulse up into the floodplain. And what they encounter are tens of thousands of acres of lakes, scatters, breaks, sloughs, just perfect habitat for spawning and rearing and feeding. And then when the river begins to contract and go back down, a lot of these recently spawned fish will follow the retreating flood down into the river and they repopulate the river. So they sustain the numbers, the biodiversity year after year because we have a natural flood pulse of the lower miss. Whereas you don't have it in the upper miss, you don't have it in the Ohio. Uh, you don't have it in the Arkansas. It's all dammed all the way up. Right. So, so that's that's the unique nature of it. And the fact that it joins the Missouri and goes another 1,200 miles mm. makes it really one of the longest, other than the I think it is the longest free-flowing stretch of river. The flood pulse, the movement of the river up and down in its floodplain, feeds the fish of the river and can be important for their breeding cycles. It's just that simple. Dr. Kilgore will now talk about why having extended stretches of free-flowing, non-dammed rivers are good for fish, and this might even bolster the tattoo idea from episode one. Don't do it, but it's a good idea. And so we do uh, 
telemetry studies and we uh, tag fish. And we've had multiple examples of fish moving upstream a thousand miles, moving downstream a thousand miles. Thousand miles. Yep. What what fish? What kind of fish are doing that? Sturgeon, paddlefish, the invasive carp. We've had buffalo. They make long migratory runs as well. Why are they? Why are those fish doing that? Like they, what, what's what's biologically advantageous about going that far? Well, I think one reason is that they're spreading out their progeny. Some of them, we, we believe, we don't know for sure, have certain homing instincts, just like salmon, that they'll actually go back to their natal spawning area or okay. in that general area. Uh, some fish may move from the Missouri down into the Mississippi, but they spawn in the Missouri. They go back to the Missouri to spawn. Okay. So it's a homing behavior. It's a behavior we don't fully understand. Really? But we do know that there's, there's a lot of movement, both upstream and downstream, of fish. Dr. Kilgore is an expert on fish, and as usual, I was delighted when he talked about all the things they don't know. Mysteries remain, brothers, and he and his teams have done some seminal work on the river and still are. But let's talk catfish. But the catfish, we have three species of giant catfish. The new state record in Mississippi, a blue cat was broken last year, a 130-pound blue cat. We regularly catch 50, 60-pound flatheads and blue cats out there. Hmm. The, the catfish population is unexploited. I mean, there are, there are so many catfish in this river, and there's so few fishermen. Really? And there's, and there's so much habitat. And, it, and, it's, and the further you go down, the bigger the catfish tend, tend to be, too, from based upon a study we did. You know, in some ways, because this river fluctuates 50 feet a year, and you got these huge floods, you know, we haven't even reached the carrying capacity of some of these fish. They can continue on, and that's what's happened, unfortunately, with the invasive carp. Hmm. They found the lower Mississippi River to be very hospitable, unfortunately. Now, the catfish, I'm, I'm interested in catfish. Mm-hmm. I would have thought that commercial fishermen were hitting the Mississippi really hard, but they're not. Yes, they are. But the numbers of commercial fishermen have dwindled over the years. Is that a market thing, or like are they part of farm it? raising catfish? That was part are, of the decline. God forbid people aren't eating as much catfish as they used to. Is <laughs> well, that true? I I think we are. There's more store bought catfish. Uh, the uh, the farm raised catfish uh, certainly took a hit on commercial fishing. However, I worked with a commercial fisherman for years, Bill Lancaster. We've already met Mr. Bill. He and Dr. Kilgore are old bros. In fact, I'll diverge for a minute and tell the story about Bill. We were coming in, and we'd been out there sampling. We, we came into our boat ramp, and here comes Bill in his boat. And he, his boat was full of fish. He was a commercial fisherman, of course, just full of catfish and buffalo. And we started talking to him, and we told him that we're interested in catching sturgeon on the Mississippi River. And he goes, did you have any suggestions? He goes, I catch sturgeon all the time on my trot lines. I go, really? Well, would you like to go out with us and show us? And he did. One January, 1999, a cold January morning, we went out with Bill. He had set trot lines on the Mississippi River. And one of the first hooks that came up, he had a 10-pound pallid sturgeon, which is the endangered species of sturgeon. Mm. And so, okay. Hey, Bill, would you like to work with us on contract? <laughs> and so for 20 years, we worked with Bill, and we put out over 10,000 
trot lines. And we wow. trot lined all the way from the mouth of the Mississippi River up to the chain of rocks in St. Louis. And that's how we figured out the status of the sturgeon population. Wow, he could catch them on trot line. Mm -hmm. 10,000 trot lines. I'd say these guys know the river as good as anybody. I want to go back to Mr. Bill. I've got a question about his fishing. What are you mainly fishing for when you're on the river? What's Uh, your target species? Two two main species. uh, That's the buffalo fish and the uh, catfish. You know, all species of catfish, channel cat, blue cat, and and flathead cat. To the market, everybody, it doesn't matter what kind of catfish? It really doesn't. Pays you know, the same. They prefer, they prefer the blue cat and the channel cat over the flathead. Really? Yeah. Now that would be opposite out in just on the street, wouldn't it? Right. Yeah. A lot of people like the flathead for its eating, but it's harder to dress. Yeah. It's more waste probably to the flathead. Okay. So for com- for the commercial market where people are, where they're processing a lot of fish, they want channels and blue. Yeah, channels and blue cat, you know, and, and preferably smaller fish. You know, they don't they don't really care about the big fish, you know, over 30 or 40 pounds. You know, they'll, they will take one or two or three, but they don't want a boatload of them. Really? Yeah. So you're not targeting big fish? No, not at all. Yeah. Anything sellable, you know, from a two pounds up to, you know, 15, 20 pounds, that's about the range that's what that I'd be, I'd be looking for. What are you yeah. doing with the buffalo? Uh, the buffalo are sold, uh, you know, sold straight to the market as is, you know. they are. There's a big demand here for buffalo. I mean, a huge demand. Probably probably sell more buffalo than catfish. Really? Buffalo yeah. ribs? Is that what people are eating? Yeah, they'll take the ribs, you know. Of course, when they dress a buffalo, they take the ribs out, and then they, they have the loin, you know, which they cut up. What's your favorite fish to catch? What do you What do you get excited about when you see when you see a net? Flatheads, probably. Really? Yeah, flatheads. Even though that's not as marketable. Yeah, yeah, but I can still sell them all all that I catch. So all that you, you know, catch. it doesn't it doesn't matter. Yeah. But I like to see a you know a net full of flatheads when they come up. Yeah. Why? Because they you can feel them before you ever before you ever raise the net. You can tell what's in there just by the way they're hitting that net. You know, way they feel, and when you pull it to the surface. It just erupts into a massive ball, you know, and you, you can see them, you know. He's not targeting the big catfish. That's interesting. And he sells more buffalo than catfish. That's interesting. But he loves catching flathead. That is not surprising. Buffalo fish, the genus Ichthyobus, is a large sucker fish that's not gained as much popularity as a game fish like catfish because they're hard to catch on rod and reel and they're bony, but they're very good to eat. Any fish restaurant in the South worth its watermelon salt is going to be serving fried, wild-caught buffalo ribs. It's a hunky piece of white meat on a single bone. You eat them like chicken wings. I've got another question, and if I'd left Mississippi without asking him this, I'd be forced to resign from my position at Meat Eater. You're not targeting big fish for the commercial market. Yeah. But just in your 50 years on the river, what's the biggest fish you've seen come out of the Mississippi River? I caught a 100-pound uh, blue cat in uh, 2017. That's the biggest, biggest fish I've caught. Yeah. Mm. Caught a lot of fish in the 70 down, you know, 60, 70, 50, 60, 70-pound range. But that 100-pounder was, was the biggest that I've, I've landed. Yeah. Mm, Caught him neat. on trot line too. Using a, uh, I was using a, a two alt stainless steel hook, 
a two I was not very big, you know, if you know anything about hooks, you mm-hmm. know. But it was it was I think March when I caught that fish, the water was super cold and uh, you know, he was he just came up to the surface and I, I got the dip net under his tail and of course I knew he was big, you know, I got the dip net under his tail and got him about halfway in that dip net because it was too big to get in. Well, I guess with the adrenaline I had pumping, you know, I just rolled him over into the boat. And then I, I looked at him. I said, wow, this is a big fish here. How, how long do you think he was? Five uh, foot? He's a, he was as tall as I was almost when he was hanging, when we hung really? him up to weigh him. You're not, you're, you're tall. Six, you're over six, six two. A 100-pound blue cat is giant. You're glad I asked, aren't you? In April 2023, the Rod and Reel Mississippi state record blue cat was caught in the river near Vicksburg and it weighed 131 pounds. Just for reference, the world record blue cat weighed 143 pounds and was caught in a North Carolina lake. The world record flathead catfish weighed 123 pounds and was caught in a lake in Kansas. The world record channel cat came from South Carolina and weighed 58 pounds. And that's a pretty good blueprint for the size of these cats. So the blue cats get the biggest, flathead second, and then channels. But most people prefer to eat flathead. And it would be a miss if I didn't learn something about the gear commercial fishermen are using on the river. Here's Mr. Bill. What kind of equipment is a commercial fisherman on the Mississippi River using? Well, people use different kind of equipment. Some people, you know, will fish maybe all gill net, gill webbing. And then, uh, you know, you people that have, that uh, do mostly hook net. Then you have some that, that just trot line. Then, like myself, you know, I do a little of all of it, depending on what time of year it is and what kind of fish I'm looking for. A gill net is simply a net stretched across a section of water that catches fish traveling up and down the river. A hoop net is shaped like a barrel, often baited but not always, and the fish enter into a wide opening that necks down and they can't get out. A trot line is a long string with baited hooks dropped off every few feet. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from 
car parts and accessories, the boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know, super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. Just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The people at Sport Dog know that having a well-trained hunting dog is more than just having a reliable partner. It's a commitment to their safety and unlocking their full potential. The Sport Dog promise to customers is simple. Gear the way you design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Trust Sport Dog, where innovation meets passion, to elevate your hunting experience and strengthen the bond with your local companion. Using tracking equipment on my squirrel and coon dogs is extremely important to me to track my squirrel dogs and my one old coon dog that's not very good. Get 20% off your first purchase using the code BEARGREASE. Go to www.sportdog.com slash BEARGREASE to learn more. I want to get back with Dr. Kilgore about his experience on the river. He's going to talk about the general health of the fishery and some of his river sampling projects. And we'll bring up an interesting idea. The river as wilderness. What he said was very surprising to me. Of course, you know, you're sampling the bottom of the Mississippi River, so you're not just getting sturgeon, you're getting these giant catfish we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You're getting a gar, buffalo, drum, goo, gasper goo, uh, all of those fish. Uh, and over time, you know, you start getting this appreciation that there's, there's hardly any limit to the number of fish that you can catch out of this river. Hmm. People are afraid to get on it. They're afraid to fish for, for good reason. Really? You have to really know what you're doing initially. But once, once you understand the things you've got to watch out for, it is a wonderful experience. And that's one of my passions. I mean, you go out there and it's just, I can look one way. And that's exactly the way Mark Twain saw the river when he was a cub pilot. And then you work, look another way, you see dikes and revetment. You know, that's modern-day Mississippi. But my point is that you can still see a lot of natural features in this river mm-hmm. that still exist and haven't, yeah. haven't changed over the eons. You know, it's kind of, I like to think a lot about wilderness, and, and I really value, like, wilderness with a capital W yes. uh, in that just a place untouched by man. You wouldn't really think of a, I wouldn't think of a river system as a wilderness, and it's not the perfect analogy, but what I'm hearing you say is that you can be on that river and you're, you're, you're dealing with something ancient. Yes. You're dealing with something very old and 
intact, which is rare. Intact. Rarely would you go into a, a natural terrestrial system today and be able to, or we have places like this, but where you would say this thing is a lot like it would have been. Pre-European. Yeah, yeah and, and you're telling me in the river with the fish, the endangered species, other than the invasives, it's doing pretty well, which is kind of surprising to me. It's doing very well, in fact. Really? Even uh, with the pollution and all the stuff? But see, the pollution, I mean, yes, we had, uh, before the Clean Water Act, there were certainly polluted waters throughout our nation, including the Mississippi River. But the legacy pesticides, like the DDT and the toxaphene, they, they are not detected in fish tissue anymore. Okay. And you hear about, oh, that the Mississippi River is polluting the Gulf of Mexico with all that nitrogen. Well, that's true, you know, because it does drain all the agriculture, almost all the agricultural yes. land in the United States. So there is fairly high nitrogen and phosphorus, but mainly nitrogen. But, uh, but that's not a form of pollution for the Mississippi. It might be a form of pollution for uh, creating a Gulf hypoxia. Right, a dead, a a dead, dead zone. Spot. But dead it's zone. not. But it's actually a lot of this nitrogen is being sequestered in the floodplain as it, as, it, as the flood spreads out. And that's what's helping, you know, the plants and the soil to grow and be nutritious and support the, the aquatic life there, too. Hmm. Uh, so, yes, it is a wilderness. Uh, a colleague of mine, Paul Hartfield, he worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service for years. He called it an engineered wilderness. Because you got the levees, you know, you have the dikes, you have the revetment. So it is an engineered system, but it still did not uh, diminish or uh, eliminate the natural features of this uh, flood pulse type river that we have. I hear that a lot. Ooh, you know, look, look how muddy it is and it's got to be polluted. I've heard it's, yeah, it's not. I tell people it's not. In fact, you know, I would catch a fish out of the Mississippi way before and eat it before I would eat a fish out of my lake there in the subdivision <laughs> is that right oh yeah that that is kind of shocking to me i love it it's yeah. kind of surprising to me and bill lancaster the commercial fisherman he has plenty of customers you know that buy his catfish and buffalo like i said commercial fishing and the commercial fisherman i'm unfortunately is a dying breed hmm. they're just not being recruited i see and uh, it's probably the economics of it well me and me and brent reeves are going to come commercial fisherman friend of ours i've got i got big dreams big dream okay there you go <laughs> big dreams folks big american dreams if the bottom falls out of the podcast market i have a diverse financial plan to make a living as number one stand-up comedian number two a commercial fisherman with Brent Reeves with our Sea Ark catfish boat, Laura, named after the Laurentide Ice Sheet. Number three, I'll work remotely as a Nashville singer-songwriter. And those things will obviously be a supplement to me already being a major player in the high-end mule market. <laughs> I don't know if I want to tell my plan or not. Somebody might steal it. Cut that out. Seriously, though. We've got to get back to what Dr. Kilgore was talking about. We're treading in some complicated water regarding the health of the river. I was completely expecting Kilgore to say the Big Muddy was America's sewer, manipulated by man so much that it was a dainty relic of its past. But that's not what he said at all. From a fish perspective, the river is healthy. I've also got to mention two things that we're just not getting into in this series. Number one, the dead zone in the Gulf. Number two, 
coastal erosion in Louisiana. There's a zone of hypoxia with very little aquatic life in it in the range of 7,500 square miles along the Gulf Coast. This dead zone is the result of excess nutrients, primarily nitrogen and phosphorus from agriculture, fertilizer runoff from lawns, and just human existence that pools in the non-moving water of the Gulf, creating algal blooms that suck up the oxygen in the water. However, nutrients in a moving current have less impact. These nutrients aren't in and of themselves harmful, but in excess, they cause big problems. This drainage basin definitely has problems, but the natural fishery of the river isn't suffering from this. I'd say that's a pretty incredible report considering a lot of the environmental news that we hear on a day-to-day basis. And the hero of this fishery is that intact natural floodplain inside the levees of the river. Don't forget it. The other thing that we're just not getting into, which is a major issue, is the coastal erosion in South Louisiana, where they've lost over 2,000 square miles of land in the last 50 years as a result of sea level rise and less sediment moving down the Mississippi River. It's incredibly complicated and serious. However, this next section is wild, and we're going back to talk to our friend and old boat captain Hank Burdine about a significant factor influencing river health. It has to do with the monetary and cultural value of hunting. Stand by. Within the, what we call the bacha, between the levees, the land between the levees, that flood, you can't build a house in that unless you build it 15, 16, 20 feet up off the ground. So the majority of that whole area down the river is in hunting grams. It used to be timber companies, but the timber companies realized that there was an inherent value in those lands recreationally for hunting. And it was about in the 70s and 80s that Anderson Cully, Chicago Mill, all of these huge timber companies that owned hundreds of thousands of acres of land between the levees said, look, we can have our cake and eat it too. We're leasing this land out to these hunting clubs for nothing really. Why don't we sell them the land, keep the timber rights, 15 to 20 years. They sell the land at top dollar for recreational purposes. They keep the timber for 20 years. They got doubled up money. So the majority of all this land now along the river is in private hunting camps, wow. hunting clubs. So really, in a way, and that's the, wild. The, the hunting, the, the value of hunting and the money that hunting brought in is, is helping preserve the wildness of the Mississippi River. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and when you talk about hunting club, you're talking about Catfish Point, 12,000 acre hunting club. You know, Huntington Point, 10,000. I mean, from like, from Memphis all the way down to New Orleans, along the Mississippi River, inside the levees, is hunting camps. From Memphis, I would say, all the way on down toward getting close to Baton Rouge. Okay. Yeah, it's hunting camps. Hunting camps. From levee to levee. They don't want those trees cleared. If they do, it's select cutting. I right. mean, the timber it's, companies it's, are out of it now, but they've got a managed program yeah. where they go in, select, cut the trees, leave this, leave that, have their food plots, all like that. And that's powerful for the health of the whole system as, as the these system. as these natural natural floodplains in, inside correct. the levees, which are man-made, but are remained timbered and managed, managed for wildlife. And I mean, it's a wildlife mecca. It's a wildlife mecca. 
water systems are a product of their riparian zones. The value of hunting camps inside the levees of the river being managed for wildlife, which is primarily whitetail, turkeys, and ducks, is creating a healthy, natural floodplain unique to the world. At one time, the value is in timber, but that is changing. I can't express what an incredible conservation story this is. Once again, hunters are the good guys saving habitat and wild places at a time in Earth's history when it couldn't be more important. That's the muddy, boggy truth. I now want to talk to the doc about the big fish, other than catfish, of the Mississippi River. Yes, there are uh, several uh, different uh, species of fish that I categorize as iconic megafauna. The first is what we've been discussing are sturgeon. There are two species of sturgeon that live their entire lives in the Mississippi River, the pallid and the shovel-nosed sturgeon. The pallid is the federally endangered species, whereas the shovel-nose is not. But they only get here in the lower mist maybe 10 or 15 pounds. They're not like the giant sturgeon that, that you see along the coast. And, and the reason, of course, that the, the demise of sturgeon was due to the building dams and the caviar market. Mm. But today, sturgeon are thriving, and they're, you can almost walk on their hacklebacks, you know? They're so... <laughs> really? The, the two most abundant bottom-oriented fish are blue cats and shovel-nosed sturgeon. More than the other catfish. More than, more, than, more than flathead, more than channel catfish. Blue cats are by far number one of the big, bigger fish. Sturgeon come in number two based upon our trot line catches. Wow. The largest North American fish, alligator gar. Now, mm. alligator gar really got a bad rap. What happened to them is that people misunderstood them. I mean, they're, they get to 300 pounds plus, and they're ugly and they're mean looking. I can understand that. But... They misunderstood them thinking that alligator gar are eating their sport fish, their bass, their bluegill, their crappie. And so they put a bounty on their head, considering them a rough fish, and they just about wiped them out. Hmm. And then they started doing scientific studies and found out, well, they eat shad. They're not eating, you know, our sport fish. And plus, Hmm. they're an apex predator of the Mississippi River. We do not want to eliminate an apex predator. And uh, may may also uh, be a biocontrol for some of the invasive carp. And so once we, we, we hated them and now we love them and there's hatchery programs introducing them back into the Mississippi really? River and we're slowly seeing them come back. How big, you said 300 pounds, how long would that fish About be? About 10 feet. 10 foot long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other iconic megafauna, which is even more interesting than all the other fish, are the paddlefish spoonbill catfish and they're very abundant here although they also have the black eggs and so now they're being targeted for the caviar because all the sturgeon are now protected so all the states are really watching harvest of paddlefish but the paddlefish they can get over 100 pounds they're they're gentle giants just an amazing, you know, and they're unique. And you call them a you call it a spoonbill catfish. Yeah, spoonbill. is it a catfish? No. Okay, no. that's just the kind of colloquial. That's term. right. It's a colloquial name. Uh, the the sturgeon and the paddlefish are very primitive. They were around during the uh, age of the dinosaurs. That's how long they have lived. Same with wow. the alligator gar. They're very primitive fish. What does it mean biologically? Like, what does it say biologically when a species is so stable for 
millions of years. Uh, they have overcome uh, the evolutionary uh, challenges of adaptation. They have adapted to that environment to be perfect. But these fish are uniquely adapted to this flowing water fluvial environment. And if you take away that flow, and you take away that flood pulse, then you eliminate those species. And that's what's happened in the upper mist. You don't see a lot of paddlefish and sturgeon mm. things up there because of the dams. Would they, would they be considered an indicator species? Yes, for a free-flowing natural river system. Hmm. I like the idea of that, that a fish that old would indicate that he kind of has met his optimum design Yes. And to, to exploit the environment that he's got. And then we could deduce that if he's still here, the conditions are like they were a long time ago. Well, and the main channel, the Mississippi River, provides the same sort of habitat quality that it did pre-European. Hmm. So that's why we have had no extinctions or extirpations. That's, that's amazing to me. What other natural system can we say exists in relative similarity to pre-European arrival? The only places that could compare would be our wildernesses with a capital W, the federally protected terrestrial wilderness. That's some wild stuff, and I'd love to see a 300-pound alligator gar, wouldn't you? Now let's hear Dr. Kilgore talk about something a lot smaller that lives in this river. This surprised me. River shrimp are, uh, prior to, you know, the exploitation of white shrimp and brown shrimp along the coast, which is where we get most of our shrimp now, the river people and the Indians, uh, the indigenous people, would eat the river shrimp because there hmm. are billions of them out there. Hmm. We'll, we'll put a trawl through there, and it, the trawl sometimes is so full of river shrimp, we can't even get it on board. And you can imagine how important those river shrimp are to the forage base of how, predator fish. How would fish. they have caught? How would have Native Americans caught river shrimp? They could put traps in there where uh, you can, like a weir or something. And, and because what they do is they they swim and walk along the bottom of the Mississippi River all the way up to the Ohio. They can go over dams. They can they can go up to the Missouri. But in order to complete their life cycle, they have to go back down to salt water. So those little shrimp have to walk all the way back down a 1,000 miles to get to the Gulf to complete their life cycle. Who knew? Now, though, I want to talk about turtles and the big picture of fish in the river. Yeah, tell me about the turtles. Along the, the river and in the swamp areas, you get these alligator snapping turtles that can get over 100 pounds. I mean, actually several hundred pounds. Uh, and, you know, they're another primitive uh, species as relatively unchanged over the years. And they have that specialized appendage on their tongue. They can remain underwater for hours and hours. And they open their mouth and they stick out their tongue and they have this little red appendage that flips back and forth. And that attracts uh, the unwary fish close to their mouth and bang, you know, they'll snap shut. So that's, they've got a little bait. They got a they're little, attracting little... their bait. To them. Wow, and this yeah. is the, out, the the alligator snapping turtle. That's right, the alligator snapping turtle. Like I said, there's about 100 species of fish that maintain reproductive populations in the lower mist. If you include the tributaries, then there's probably about 250 species of fish hmm. that are associated. How does that compare with the other rivers of the world? Is that, That's quite biodiverse. Yes, it is, but it's nothing compared to the Amazon. 
wow. which has probably over 2,000 species of fish. Wow. I mean, I know. I mean, Amazon is such a an anomaly, you it's know. It's like Amazon's the NBA, and we're playing like in <laughs> yeah. high school 1A basketball down here. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't compare any river of the, of the world to the Amazon. It's in mm. a class by itself. The outflow of the Amazon is up to 20 million cubic feet per second. At a major floods on the Mississippi, we only get 2.5 million cubic feet per second. Wow. So it's, you know, it's 10 times higher. And it's longer, the, the drainage basin is wider, and there's no dams. No on, dams on the main on the Amazon. stem Amazon. Whereas all the other great rivers of the world, the Congo, the Nile, uh, the Yancey, all of those, they have dams near the mouth of the river. The Amazon is a beast. I waited until the end of this series to mention it because it makes our beloved Mississippi look like a creek. The Amazon is the river all rivers are compared to. Dr. Kilgore has spent a lot of time on the Big Muddy, and I want to hear him talk about the perils of navigating the river. You said that people are afraid to get on the river Mm -hmm. because of how dangerous it is. Anybody in American history that has been on the Mississippi River has some boat wreck story. (laughs) Our, our, Our boy Davy Crockett crashed a boat just south of Memphis and nearly died on the Mississippi River. Uh-huh. And then, you know, all of Mark Twain's writing talks right. about the dangers of the Mississippi yeah. River. And today it's still dangerous, even though it's it's been tamed from those days. Right. What do you, you said there were some safe, some things that you would look for. You can be safe. What, what would those be? Well, uh, I mean, for me, number one is I, I watch the wind. Because there's nothing worse being on the Mississippi River when you have a south wind pushing against a northern moving river, and the waves are like this. So in, in small boats that we're in, you know, we're just, we can't, you know, you can't get on plane. You know, you're getting inundated by all this water. It can be very dangerous out there in high wind. Hmm. The most dangerous thing out there are the stone dikes. There's no doubt about it. We've had some tragic stories about f- folks leaving Vicksburg and never being seen again other than their boat turned over because of a dike. You have to, first of all, know kind of where the dikes are, what the telltale signs of these dikes, because they may be underwater, but they're still not deep enough, and you can still hit your lower unit on it and flip the boat. So you have to know and have navigation charts is, is good, but I don't, I mean, I'm familiar with this river around here. I know where all the dikes are. But if you don't, you better be real careful and stay along the buoy line because the Coast Guard generally, not all the time, but they'll adjust the buoys according to the flood height. And then the other thing you got to watch out for are the towboats because towboats can't stop on a dime, so you don't want to get in front of them. But when they're pushing upstream, they're creating these really big wakes and, and that's going to slow you down, too. So, you, you know, you have to be able to take these wakes slowly and get out of it. You don't want to hit them hard because it'll flip your boat, too, if you're mm. not careful. So it's the wind, the stone dikes, and the towboats. But once you have a feeling and understanding, you know, it's just, like I said, it's a wilderness out there. Usually the only people, only thing you see out there are the, are the uh, towboats. Mm. You don't see a whole lot of recreational boats out there. Yeah. Now, during the summer, if it's a nice day, 
that sandbar across from Vicksburg, it's got boats up and down that thing. People are just laying out on the beaches. That's another thing about the Mississippi River. It's got these giant point bars. There is more sand beaches along the lower Mississippi River than all along the Gulf Coast. Is that right? Yes. Do y'all remember when Hank Burdine called the Mississippi America's Fourth Coast? I like that. I'm doing some cleanup work with Dr. Kilgore. I wanted to ask him about shipwrecks. And turns out he was holding out a great story on us this whole time. So you think, are there a lot of shipwrecks in the Mississippi River? Hundreds. 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 And some of them may be in an ag field because the Mississippi River has changed course as it meanders. Remember that meander belt? Okay. A guy named Henry Fisk, he, he did this geomorphic study, and he mapped out all the meander belts on the Mississippi River over the last 10,000 years. And it's, a, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, you, you just can't believe all these meander bends that have cut off. So you may be 25 miles from the current Mississippi River today and find a, I mean, the channel could have been there. So you could have a shipwreck exactly 400 years ago right. on your place. That's right. We discovered wow. one. On the uh, the old White River, right where the White River comes into the Arkansas, the old White River mouth is kind of a meandering chute. And we were there during low water, and we looked up there, and there was this long wooden boat that had been exposed by the bank sloughing off. And we reported it to the Arkansas folks, and they had heard about it, but they came out and excavated some it? of it. It was an 1800s version of it. I don't can, know. Isaac, can you believe he wasn't going to tell me this story? <laughs> He's holding out on us. What other interesting things have you found in the river? Uh, I haven't found them, but I've been with folks who have found them. A uh, giant ground sloth claw. Wow. How big is that? Yeah, it's probably eight or nine inches long, curved, black, unbelievable. Wow. And I've seen all kinds of teeth and uh, Indian artifacts like uh, old bottles. You'll find old bottles. You'll find pieces of uh, pot, uh, pottery. You'll find uh, old whiskey jugs, pieces of the old whiskey jugs, and fine china that used to be on the boats that sank out there. You'll find chips of them. Do, have you, do you ever see the bison skulls? Yes. In fact, yeah, they Bradley, another guy down there, we were walking on one, and all of a sudden his, his foot hits something, and he starts digging around, and he picks up an entire intact bison skull wow that was preserved out there you should have pushed him out of the way and <laughs> touched it first i saw it first yeah yeah when we say okay uh let's take a break on this gravel bar and we all just spread out you know <laughs> when everyone's looking some people are running you know for big stuff and others are just going real slow looking at, wow. at the little the river stuff. just constantly is revealing new it stuff does. it does when brent and i start commercial fishing and we find our first shipwreck trust me That will be the first thing we bring up in conversation for the rest of our lives. Hopefully it's not Laura. Misty would get burned out quick on a shipwreck story if I found one, or was in one. Undoubtedly, the Mississippi River is one of America's most extravagant natural systems, rivaling the Rocky Mountain Range, the Appalachians, our great deserts, our giant inland lakes, our majestic coastlines. This river, its size and its location has been a fundamental component of what makes America, America, both functionally and culturally. I want to end by asking Mr. Bill about why he's dedicated his life to working on the river. You love fishing the river. Yeah. Why? What is it that you love about fishing the Mississippi River? Oh, just the uh, solidarity of it. 
Yeah, just being out there. If you're out there, you know, before the sun comes up and you see the sun come up or you see the sun go down, it's just a uh, almost a spiritual experience. You know, when there's nobody, you know, there's nobody to talk to. There's nobody around. You don't see anybody. You're just out there in the wilderness, you know, almost like, like you know, you're the only person on earth. Yeah. In episode one of this series, we learned about the river's incomprehensible power and size along with man's ancient connection to it. The first Europeans saw it in 1541 and we'll never know when the first Native American, the first human saw it. Time has forgotten. In episode two, we talked about how the Mississippi Delta was one of America's last frontiers that kept civilization at bay because of constant flooding until the advent of levees long after most of America was settled. We talked about the plantations, slavery, sharecropping. We talked with Mr. Earl Jasper about growing up in the Delta in a sharecropping family. That was big. We talked about the art and literature of the Delta and how prior to the Civil War, this region was one of the richest places in America, fueled by some of the richest alluvial soil in the world. On episode three, we talked with author John Barry about the engineering feats that defined the century as daring men sought to tame the river and how human nature and ego helped formulate the circumstances for America's most costly natural disaster, which changed America forever, the flood of 1927. On this fourth episode, we've talked about the health of the fishery of the Mississippi River, and I am highly encouraged to learn that the river is thriving And much of it has to do with an intact floodplain preserved by the value of hunting camps inside the levees. We've just begun to scratch the surface of really understanding this river. Like I've said so many times, there's so many directions this story could have gone, and I just had to choose some directions to go. But I believe every American ought to know about the Mississippi River. I started off with a knowledge gap that plagued me and a desire to understand this river as a natural system and how it's impacted America. And I think we've taken a pretty big swing in understanding the Mississippi River. I can't thank you enough for listening to Bear Grease. Hey, be sure to check out the Phelps Acorn Inhale Exhale Grunt and Bleep Call for Deer Hunting. It's made of fine white oak wood we only made 500 of these calls, and they've even got my dadgum's signature on them. For real, I stand by these calls as incredible deer calls. Nothing else on the market like it. Have a great week, and I look forward to talking with the folks on The Render next week. Here's a simple but meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. A digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pictures of all the things that they can't be there for, from family vacation to their grandkids' graduation. My parents are always asking for sports photos of my son who plays basketball. That A lot of the games, they aren't able to make it. It comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame, so you can upload as many photos as you want, and mom can pick the perfect one. 
See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. I have an Aura frame, and so does Juju, my mom, and they love it. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. For a limited time, listeners can get $20 off their best-selling frame with code BEAR. That's A-U-R-A, frames.com, promo code BEAR. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule. And it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Grease. 